This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hello, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Just About Work, where we talk about everything that can have an impact on your career. Today, we're talking with journalist, author, and environmental spokesperson, Bob Deans. He's a wonderful writer. And these days, he's director of strategic engagement for the Natural Resources Defense Council, the nation's foremost environmental advocacy group. Bob is a leading voice on major environmental issues. And you've probably heard of him because he's a frequent commentator on national radio and television, as well as in other media. But Bob started his career not as an advocate, but as a newspaper reporter. He rose to the top of that profession, including with eight years covering the White House. And that included a term as president of the White House Correspondents Association. Bob will describe how he made the shift from journalist to advocate. And he'll talk about why journalist and fact-based advocacy are so vital to our democracy and to all of us as citizens. Bob, I know that a lot of our listeners uh, may know you from discussions on environmental issues because you're all over the place in media venues like C-SPAN. I I know you're a frequent on-air guest, but before we talk about all the things you're doing these days and your work for the NRDC, I want to hear the story of your career. I know um, you spent many years as a journalist before you became an advocate as you are today, and I I kind of vaguely recall that you may have started your career as a as an itinerant uh, musician. Could that be right? Could Could you just kind of tell us how you built your career in some unlikely stages along the way, even? It is true, Bev. I helped work my way through college by singing in bars in Richmond, and my uh, journalism advisor, who was not all that enamored of my journalistic talents, uh, was relieved that I was going to pursue a career in entertainment and said that he wished more of his students would do the same. <laughs> but uh, I did fairly quickly make my way back into journalism, and it really was a dream for me, Bev, to become a newspaper reporter. I became involved in the news business when I was 10 years old, delivering my hometown paper, the Richmond Times-Dispatch, and I really fell in love with newspapers, Bev, sort of one headline at a time, reading the paper in the fading light of a waning moon or the fleeting lights of a passing milk truck in those days. And uh, I thought of those reporters as sort of gods. They were they were remote, they were, they were Delphic, and uh, they were completely self controlled. I mean, nobody seemed to have any, any licensure on these people, and I wanted to be one of those guys. Uh, was it a difficult transition after, after school? Were you torn, be, torn between music and reporting, or did was, you always know? I was definitely torn between music and journalism for a couple of years, and then I had a very clarifying moment. I was playing five nights a week in a very popular bar in downtown Richmond, Bev, and one very quiet uh, Sunday evening, Dick Clark walked into the bar room. He'd been in Richmond to uh, MC some sort of event, and I guess he had a little time on his hands. He walked in, sat down by himself, quietly had a drink at the bar, and I launched into the best Jackson Brown song in my repertoire, 
He politely listened, finished his drink, left a nice tip on the bar, got up and kind of gave me a tip of the hat and walked out the door. And I said, that's it. I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not getting anywhere here. And so uh, I did have something that I was torn. I wanted to go into journalism. I took that as a... uh, as a, as a decisive indicator that, uh, that my future as a musician was uh, very limited, and I jumped with a, a, a fury with both feet into my first job in journalism, which was a, a small bureau in Atlanta, Georgia, for a uh, trade publication out of New York City. They moved me to New York. I was an editor there for a couple of years, then I got my first break in daily journalism with the Charleston uh, News and Courier at the time and the Evening Post. Both of those Charleston papers have since merged. It's now called the Post and Courier. From there, I was hired by the Atlanta Constitution and then went over to the uh, paper's parent company, Cox Newspapers. They sent me to Tokyo to be the chief Asia correspondent and uh, later to Washington, and that's where I spent most of my career. So a lot of reporters do move around, or at least... Um, in the years when we were both growing up in our careers, it was normal to kind of move from a paper to a bigger paper. But taking a big leap from um, Atlanta or Charleston or, uh, and going to Japan, that's a different kind of leap. What was it like to um, go off to a foreign bureau? It was a huge leap. I was thrilled. Um, I had been angling for a um, slot in Africa. That was my dream at the time. I'd been studying a lot about it. Um, of course, this was pre-internet when I had to go into libraries, and uh, there was a Institute for uh, International Studies in Atlanta that really helped me. And I'd been studying hard, learning about the politics and economic prospects for different countries of Africa. And uh, I had was looking for that, but what was what became available was a slot in Tokyo, and the uh, Cox Bureau chief at the time, Andy Glass, hired me for that job, and it was uh, just a dream job, Bev. I had from Japan all the way to Afghanistan, so I, you know, went through the Khyber Pass into Soviet-occupied Afghanistan with the Mujahideen. I covered the uh, horrible situation at Tiananmen Square, covered the rise of democracy in Korea, South Korea, and um, learned about a fascinating uh, region with an endless culture. And uh, just really, I just felt blessed every single day I was out there, Bev. So when you came back, it, it does sound like fascinating and wonderful and exhausting and sometimes frightening. But when you came back, did you also have a a different kind of perspective as a journalist? Did you look around at American culture and politics, and did it look different to you? It looked very different, Bev. I think it's a great experience for somebody to go abroad for four years, as I did. Um, Of course, the contrast at the time was Asia, this dynamic, uh, growing juggernaut, and you came back to the United States. And when I came back here, in the early 90s, we were pulling out of a mild recession. And so the the contrast between the dynamism abroad and the um, sort of fading prospects of the Rust Belt, the heartland of this country, uh, was shocking. But I think the single largest thing that I picked up was Japan, compared to the United States, is a very economically egalitarian society. Now, it has to be said, Japan is almost completely homogenous ethnically. Um, But that aside, 
the widening gap between the rich and the poor in this country um, shocked me when I came back and has shocked me ever since. It's only gotten uh, more yawning, and it dawned on me about a few years after I was here that in so many ways in the United States, we were becoming two different countries that weren't even speaking the same language and were losing our ability to communicate with each other. And I think that's what we saw in the 2016 elections and, and are continuing to see manifest itself in our political divide, Bev. So with that awareness, what was it like to be immersed in sort of official Washington, and you know some things were happening out there, but were they hard to get at from a Washington venue? Very hard to get at because um, the name of the game in Washington so much is um, obfuscation. And for a country that prides itself on um, open and transparent government by the consent of the governed, um, 25 years of uh, journalism in Washington will teach you how little we actually ever know about the workings of our government. Now, don't get me wrong, we still know more than uh, is known in most countries. But uh, I remember when Paul O'Neill, who was George W. Bush's uh, Treasury Secretary, came out with his book, and he said after he'd left the administration, and he said that a cabinet meeting with George W. Bush was a bizarre experience. I believe he he described it as you know, a blind man leading a room full of deaf people. <laughs> um, at that time, Bev, I was spending every day of my life in the down in the press room at the White House. And what dawned on me was I had so little idea what was going on 50 feet away from me in the White House. You were not only there in the, the basement with the rest of the press corps, but you became pretty prominent. I um, my recollection is that at one point you were president of the White House Correspondents Association. That's right, Bev. And that's an elected position. You get sort of nominated by somebody and then there are elections and you're elected by your peers. You're elected by the other members of the White House press corps. So it's not as it might sound as though you're appointed by the president. You're elected by the other reporters. So, you know, that that came, I took it seriously, and it came with a real responsibility to me. I felt like I was representing these people who I respected and looked up to and in, in, and in some ways just really tried to emulate. And so I did my best to advocate for um, better access. Um, the other side of it was working on travel arrangements, trying to make sure that we were getting uh, fair value when we chartered planes to follow the, the president around and those kinds of things. But the most important piece of it was communicating directly with the White House and saying, you know, we're the eyes and ears of the public up here. And it's important for people to remember the First Amendment protects journalists, but it's, it's not because we're special. It's because the American people have the right to know the truth. And that's our job. If we're not there doing that job day in and day out, uh, we don't know the truth, and we we will not be able to fairly exercise that right, and that is the foundational right upon which all others depend, because if we don't really know what our government is doing in our name, on our behalf, with our resources, then we can't call that government by the consent of the government. We can't consent to that. I know that there were frustrations, and that uh, being part of the press corps, but feeling like you were shut out frequently was... Um, difficult to deal with. But look at what's happening today. Um, what can you say about how it's different from when when you were there in the, the press room? 
Well, it's, it, what's happening today is truly appalling, and every American, Democrat, Republican, and in between should be appalled, should be outraged, should be jumping up and down and screaming about it, and I'll tell you why. Every president has their ups and downs with the media, Bev. Certainly George W. Bush did before him. Bill Clinton did. Um, every president does, and every single um, correspondent over there has issues with access. We always want to know more. We always want to be understanding more about why it, people are pressing a certain policy, um, how it's going to work, what are the problems with it, what are the risks for the country. We always want to know more. But never before have we had a president who has made it a fundamental pillar of his administration to discredit, disparage, and ultimately delegitimize not only journalists, not only White House reporters, not only um, the free and independent press, but economists, judges, scientists, the CIA, the FBI, the United Nations, um, every independent source of verifiable objective truth has been the target of derision by this president in a deliberate, concerted effort to undercut anyone or any institution that is in a position to question him or to scrutinize his actions or to criticize him or his administration. That is a dangerous situation for us to be in. And the fact that he has convinced half of the Republican Party that a free and independent press is an enemy of the state is absolutely 180 degrees away from what our founders envisioned about this country. It's 180 degrees wrong from the whole reason that, that freedom of the press was the very first thing our founders protected when they laid out that Bill of Rights. We all need to stand up and say that, Bev, every day. So what would you say to young journalists who are thinking about, or maybe journalism students who are thinking about whether or not they want to be reporters, whether or not um, there are opportunities, whether or not it really is an important profession. How, what would you say to them today? It has never been more important than it is today. If anyone came to me, a young person, and said they were interested in journalism, I would say, God bless you. How can I help? Um, because we need good journalism today more than ever. I love the Washington Post new motto, democracy dies in darkness. That is exactly right, and that's what we all need to remember. And that's exactly what this administration is about, Bev. They're trying to throw a blanket over the American public and keep us in the dark as to what's going on so that we don't understand and we won't question and that we will take at face value everything that comes out of the mouth of a president who misleads us an average of six times every day he's been in office. That's as wrong as wrong can be. And the quality of our democracy, Bev, is directly related to the quality of the information upon which we make our decisions. Democracy is simply a way to make decisions, but it makes decisions in a way that gathers the will of our people and the great judgment of the whole. Those are powerful things. And the final thing that it does, Bev, is if we don't agree with everything that happens, at least we are in agreement on the process and we all have faith in that process and hope that we can do better the next time around. That is what binds this democracy together. That's what binds this nation together. Lose that, 
and the Republican begins to slip away. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. Are you ready to make a difference in the world? The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University can give you the skills to do just that. The school offers a multidisciplinary approach where public policy, environmental studies, and entrepreneurship come together to educate tomorrow's leaders. Learn more about the Master's in Public Administration or Environmental Studies by visiting ohio.edu backslash School. You have made an interesting transition from being an independent reporter to being an advocate, but an advocate who it feels to me, is very committed to independent, accurate information. You're still in the game, but you're playing a different position. What's it like to go from from uh, being a leading journalist to, to being a, a spokesperson for a leading um, uh, organization uh, that's um, looking at very serious environmental issues. Well, Bev, there's some, there's some really interesting parallels, and I love the way you put it, still in the game, playing a different position, because in, 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 the, in, in the larger sense, we're still doing the same thing. We're trying to gather information, share it with the public in a way that people can, uh, will read and understand and believe. That's what we're trying to do. Um, and being a spokesperson for the Natural Resources Defense Council, uh, kind of carries a similar obligation to being a White House correspondent for the Atlanta Constitution. You feel as though it's a enormous responsibility because you're representing an institution that means something to people and that uh, really matters in terms of our, uh, our civil society. Um, on a small scale, we still deal with <laughs> cluttered leads jargon, uh, but I think the big picture is that what you learn in, in 30 years of journalism um, about crisp, clear writing, it turns out that crisp, clear writing makes for good public advocacy. So that's a good thing. And it comes down to the same thing that you're shooting for in journalism. It's a clarity of purpose, quality of your information, and precision of expression. And so the writing is very much the same game in a different position. The difference is advocacy. I I was taught in grade school that there were three reasons to write, to inform, to persuade, or to entertain. Uh, My journalism teacher sort of dismissed my entertainment skills as well, but uh, that left me with inform, which is what I did the first 30 years of my career, and now I'm persuading. I'm trying to help people to understand the stakes in protecting our environment, the stakes for our economy, the stakes for our security, the stakes for our children's future. I'm trying to give people voice so that they have the language to use to talk about this, and I'm trying to help people understand the importance of holding our leaders to account so that we thank them when they do the right thing, we make them pay a price when they do the wrong thing, and we try to help the public understand the difference between the two. I want you to share some tips about 
other people or for other people who might want to do the same thing. But before we get to that, I I want to focus on writing. As you just mentioned, writing is uh, just so powerful. And in addition to being your day job, writing has also been a kind of your side gig. You are a beautiful writer. I think people may notice from the way you talk, you can write with passion and beauty. And one of my um, favorite books, some of your books are more advocacy, but I, I love the book, The River Where America Began, A Journey Along the James. You write with um, passion about the James River in your native Virginia. Can can you tell us what inspired you to write uh, the biography of a river? Well, yes, it's a great question, Bev. I grew up along the James River, and we just thought it was a place you'd go and catch catfish and go swim in the rapids in the summer. We never realized its historical impact. And I remember once I was taking my daughter, who was probably seven or eight at the time, to see the headwaters of the river. I'd never been there, and I was talking to her about the fact that, you know, this is a river where George, uh, where Thomas Jefferson grew up. It was the river of Powhatan and Pocahontas and Patrick Henry, and it was also the river Abe Lincoln came up when he visited Richmond in the crumbling ruins of the Confederacy the day after Richmond fell to the Union. And uh, as I was talking about that, I noticed Maisie had kind of slipped out of her sandals and waded into the river, and she cupped her hands, bent over to take a drink of water, and she says, I'm taking a drink. Now I'll always have the spirit of the James in me. And it, it dawned on me, Bev, it was not in the moment, but in the, in the sort of weeks after that, I thought, you know, we all have the spirit of the James in us, and wouldn't that be a wonderful story to tell? And so that's what inspired me to write that book, and it was a, a real labor of love, and uh, thank you for bringing it up. Well, it's it's a beautiful book, and um, I think it's it's a favorite for people in Virginia who who know something of the history and also people who don't know anything of the history but know something of the the beauty of the river and the state but back to back to what we were talking about uh, before the the need to um, shine a, a light on the importance of good information and uh, advocacy in the midst of chaos and all the things you're doing I hear from a lot of young people when I'm um, uh, doing a little work at Ohio University, young journalists who are struggling to figure out their role. But I've had more than one say, you know, point to somebody in in the media, um, an expert, and say, that's what I want to be. There are, there are a lot of young people who would like to be expert talkers like you and, and um, get in many different venues and talk about issues that are important to them. You did it, like many people do, by working for many years as a reporter and then gradually making the transition. But talking to somebody young or maybe somebody who wants to make a career shift, how can you step into a career as an advocate about things that you really care about? Well, I think in my case, I was helped, Bev, by having a skill. I think you have to, and I've told my own children this, work hard, try to find something that you like, you have some aptitude for, and that there is a market for that people will pay you to do. And then work very hard to be as good as you can at it. I try to tell my children, don't get hung up on being the best, but be the best that you can be. Um, be good enough that you can get the job done uh, when, it, when it needs to be done. So I would say to young people, work on your writing. Um, understand how to um, 
approach a problem by asking questions, by um, trying to condense your uh, idea for a story into a single question that you can answer by answering three sub-questions to that. And try to think about it analytically like that. Learn how to do that. Learn how to do it in a timely way. Uh, without wrestling for hours on end about the lead or the first two paragraphs, get the story written and go back and refine and edit and and get those skills down. And then, uh, and in my case, I was fortunate to be able to work um, at some smaller papers, and I got a, a real good background, everything from the you know from the courthouse all the way to the White House. And I did have, of course, the greatest bureau chief in history, your husband Andy Alexander, who was my boss for many years, and just taught me so much about about this business and about writing and about journalism. I do think it helps to have somebody to look to. I, I used to look to a guy named Dale Eisman who wrote for the Richmond Times-Dispatch when I was in college, and he covered politics, and I just thought that's the guy I want to be. It's, it, it does help to get a picture in your head of, of a man or a woman that you might look to and say, you know, that's who I aspire to become. And then I would say read widely, read critically, um, I guess if I looked back over my career and said something I wish I'd done more of, pay attention to your friends. You meet some fascinating people in whatever your career is and take the time to get to know them, build those relationships. I probably could have done more of that. And um, ultimately, I guess family. I remember Sam Nunn, when he was retiring from the Senate, told me you have to schedule time with your family because in Washington it won't just happen. You can't leave it to happenstance. I'm grateful for the times I did that. I wish I'd done it more. A little bit more advice for people, um, if you will. And, and here, here's my question. I think that um, you were quite eloquent talking about the challenge we're all facing in a world in which journalists are being attacked when they're trying to do their job of getting information to the people. That's really what's at issue. It's not that journalists are special, as you say. It's that the people need to have accurate, independent information if they're going to do their part as citizens. Do you have any suggestions for people who um, who don't have a career in journalism or advocacy but want to do something in their communities or where they are to, to make a contribution to a uh, um, whether it's a free press or open forums or better, more civility in, in, in discussion about issues. Yes, I do, Bev. And I think, you know, I go back when I was a, when I was a kid, when I was 12, I had a, a mini bike and a friend of mine was a really good mechanic and we used to spend a lot of time working on our, our bikes and, and later our cars. And he taught me that, uh, you, you know, when you approach a problem, something's broken, you, how is it supposed to work? Why isn't it working this way? What are we going to have to do to fix it? People in this country need to understand how our government is supposed to work, how it's designed to work, how the three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial, are supposed to be a check and a balance on each other. And then we can start asking, in what way isn't it working, and then how are we going to fix it? If you go about asking those kinds of questions, 
And then you see the president going into a closed door meeting with a man who just oversaw uh, the most comprehensive cyber attacks in history on our electoral system, struck right at the very heart of American democracy. Why is the president having a closed door meeting with that individual? What are they saying? How will we ever know? Um, what's wrong with that? What should we be doing differently? Um, when you hear the president attacking a free and independent press, vilifying the, the press, trying to tell people that the press is an enemy of the state, why would he do that? Why? How is this supposed to work? How are we going to be informed voters if the sole source of our information is the president of the United States? Um, ask yourself these questions. And I think if we guide our, our, guide our, our reading, our thinking, and our work as citizens, um, enjoying the rights, privileges, and responsibility of American citizenship, asking those questions is vital. And I think one of the things we can do is look local, look and see if there's a need for some nonprofit journalism to uh, supplement um, newspapers that are in distress or closing down, and, 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 and look around and see if there are ways to provide independent research and reporting in and, and fields that you know. It's so important, Bev, and you know that's one of the things that we've really lost in the great washout of American newspapers. And of course, the promise was the internet was going to plug us in and tell us what was going on. Well, the internet is not—it is a pipeline. The internet is not capable of getting out there, uh, tying on its shoes, and going out with a pen and a pad and finding out what's happening in our communities. People need to do that, and they need to be paid to do it. And we've really—we've really lost that, and it's taking its toll. And so supporting independent journalism by a newspaper when you're in a where, – wherever you live, people should be subscribing to their newspaper. That's the last stand against totalitarianism is for us to know what's going on in our communities, in our states, in our world. And so I, I, I think you're right, supporting independent journalism any way we can and supporting those people who are trying to pursue it, our students, um, you know, who – Support scholarships, support opportunities, uh, support internship opportunities for young people, and support these people in what they're doing with mentorship. Well, that's good advice, Bob, and I, I really appreciate it, and I, I appreciate uh, your passion and your um, sharing it with us today, and uh, I, I look forward to uh, what you write next because it's always interesting and often beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bev. It's been a pleasure. Today we've been talking with author, journalist, First Amendment champion, and environmental commentator, Bob Deans. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. We hope you're enjoying Jazzed About Work. If you are, please tell your friends. If you have questions or suggestions, please email me. Here's the address. I'll say it first and I'll spell it out. Beverly E. Jones at me.com. That's B-E-V-E-R-L-Y-E. J-O-N-E-S at M-E dot com.